0: Acts chapter 14. Today we will consider a passage that is sort of a Gentile parallel to a text that we studied earlier. If you will remember back in Acts chapter 3, there was a crippled man that Peter and John met on the way to the temple. That crippled man in Acts 3 was lame from birth was never able for his entire life to walk. The text in Acts 3 tells us that he was carried wherever he went. In today's text in Acts 14, there is another crippled man, a man who had never walked, a man who was lame from birth. The first man was a Jewish man. This man is a Gentile. The first man met Peter and John. This man meets the apostle Paul and his companion Barnabas. Let us read together. Acts chapter 14 verses 8 through 18. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures. As I read, this is the word of God. In Lystra, a man was sitting whose feet were incapacitated. He had been disabled from his mother's womb and had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. Paul looked at him intently and saw that he had faith to be made well. And he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. Moreover, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard about it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men out of the same nature as you preaching the gospel to you to turn from these useless things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. In past generations, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven. And fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even by saying these things, only with difficulty did they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. Let's bow and ask God's blessing on our time together. Great Triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you and we praise you for your word. We ask today that you would be with us in power. That you would work among us today, working your will, working sanctification in your people, conforming us to the image of our dear Savior and Lord. God, we pray that you would work salvation in those whom you are calling to yourself. Drawing them to Christ through faith by your own sweet, dear, amazing grace. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. We pray that in it we would hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we ask these things. Amen. Now I've already mentioned a couple of similarities between the texts of the crippled man in Acts 3 and this text. But I wanted to mention a few other contrasts and comparisons, or I should say comparisons and contrasts, because that's the order that we'll cover them in, uh, that we're going to pick up from these texts. Uh, So first, the comparisons that we see. I, I mentioned that both these men, we see in verse 8, both these men were lame from birth. This is not an injury. This is not an accident. This is not a, an illness. This is lame from birth. These men were both uh, in their communities known by all. Everyone knew them. They're not passersby. They're not sojourners. They are known by those people in the community. And I mention that because it might be easy to, to have thoughts about someone who does a healing with someone you don't know. But when someone you know and have known your entire life to have this infirmity, to have this this disability, and then they are healed completely. This is known as well by the whole community. Both the man in Acts 3 and this man here in Acts 14, both of them have what we would call a hopeless case. A hopeless case. This this is not an illness that will get better. This is not an injury that will heal. This is something that is hopeless. This is not a case for a better doctor. This is not a case for a greater treatment. This case, these cases, I should say, comparing Acts 3 and Acts 14, these cases can only be remedied by a miracle from God. That's the only hope that there is. Both in Acts 3 and in Acts 14, these two crippled men are sitting and asked for nothing. Neither of these healings are an answer to a request. Would you please Heal me. Neither of these men asked for anything, but they were healed. Peter, if you will remember in Acts 3, said, Oh, uh, because that man did ask. I shouldn't say he asked for nothing. That man was begging, he was asking for alms, he was asking for money. He did not ask for healing. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, if you remember in Acts 3, Peter said to him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to thee. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And here, Paul, it, it almost seems like he shouts at this man the way the text puts it. He speaks in a loud voice. Stand upright, get up and walk. Both of these men, upon receiving this healing, this word from the apostle, both of these men did not just slow. They didn't get up like me and Pastor Brent do sometimes. It's slow, and there's a lot of noise with it, right? Oh, oh cracking and popping, and they didn't get up like that. Both of these men leaped to their feet. Neither apostle said leap. <laughs> but they have to try out the new gear. <laughs> they got to try out the new stuff. So they rise up, walking and leaping, both of these men on their new, newly strengthened legs. And in both cases, Acts three and in Acts fourteen, the crowd was pleased. If you'll remember back in Acts three, the the scribes and Pharisees were seeking to. Uh, To to arrest and to do harm and to, to stop the apostles, Peter and John. But the crowds were so pleased that they were unable to do anything. And here the crowd is pleased and we'll get more into that as we go. So there's some comparisons between these two, but there are contrasts that we must also note. I've already mentioned that in Acts 3, the crippled man is a Jewish man. And here in Acts 14, this is a Gentile man. This may have something to do that with the fact that between Acts 3 and Acts 14, we have that whole Cornelius thing. We have that whole the gospel going to the Gentiles. But but one man is a Jew and one man is a Gentile. The Jewish man who is healed in Acts 3 is, is healed and interacts with the Apostle Peter, who is the apostle to the Jews. So the Jewish man is healed by the apostle to the Jews. And in Acts 14, we have this Gentile man who is healed by the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 3, this man is sitting outside the temple. Remember, he was not allowed to go into the temple. He's sitting outside the temple begging for alms, begging for money, anything that will help. He's unable to work. This is his only way of providing for himself. And he is doing what he can. But he's sitting there begging. There is no preaching. And there's nothing that he is listening to. But here, the Gentile man in Acts 14 is listening to. To the apostle Paul as he preaches and we see that in verse 9 and in verse 9 we read this Paul saw that he had faith Paul saw that can faith be seen well that would be an interesting question we don't have time to go into that I would, I would accept either answer but I would want an explanation Can faith be seen? No, faith cannot be seen. You can't look and observe faith. But in another way, faith can be seen. Amen? What, What did James say? Show me your faith. Show me your faith. Without works, I will show you. There's a hint. Faith can be seen. James says, show me your faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith can be seen. And the Apostle Paul looks And he sees that this man has faith to be healed. Now, we don't know. There's no explanation given. What does that mean that he looked at him and saw faith? Uh, Some have suggested that this is just body language. And I can tell you as a preacher who preaches at least once a week that you do see body language. You see the the nodding off body language. And sometimes you see someone sitting on the edge of their seat, listening, nodding along. Sometimes you see the body language that says that person is listening and they are believing the word of God. You can see that. And some have suggested maybe that's what happened here. And it could be, or it also could be, we, we must remember that this is the apostle Paul and he is in a special time. And as an apostle, We don't have apostles today, but as an apostle, he might have a special revelation from God that he can see what you and I would not be able to look and see. Either way, Paul looked and saw faith. It's interesting to consider the similarities, the differences between these two accounts of healing in Acts 3 and in Acts 14. And I've even titled at the top of my page this sermon, Healing a Crippled Man. But I'm not satisfied with that title. I don't know of a better one or I would have written that down. But but the reason I'm not satisfied with that title is because I honestly think there's more here for us to learn from this text in the reaction to the healing than in the healing itself. In in the aftermath of the healing, we learn much. And and I just want to mention here, for some of you who are interested in hermeneutics, the art and science of studying the scripture, one principle of hermeneutics is how much text is given to something. And here we see the the healing is, is very short. It's just a couple of verses. And the majority of our text for today is in the aftermath. It's in what comes after the healing. So I want us to look at the aftermath of the healing. But first, there's something I need to repeat. Something that I've said often before. And this repetition is necessary because number one, the text calls for it. But number two, because of the spirit of the age in which we live. There are so many who go after the miraculous. There are so many who in our day seek and not just in our day, but we could say still in our day who seek after the spectacular. What can God do for me or what can God do to impress me? They look for that rather than looking for. And loving what God has already given us. What he has already directed and declared to be profitable for us. I'm talking about the scripture. So I I repeat myself in saying this. Miracles of the Bible are not just for our amusement. It wasn't for their amusement then And they're not for our amusement now. The miracles of scripture are for a purpose. The miracles of scripture are for the purpose of affirming the message of Jesus Christ. This was the purpose when Jesus himself performed miracles. They were to affirm that he is God in the flesh. That what he said and what he preached is true. This was the purpose of the miracle in Acts 3 when Peter said silver and gold have I not rise and walk in the name of Jesus. This was the purpose of that miracle because right after that Peter preached the word he preached the gospel and that miracle was to affirm what he preached. And here in Acts 14 this is the same purpose of this miracle. This miracle and all miracles of Scripture are not done in isolation for amusement. These miracles are done and this miracle in our view today in Acts 14 is done in connection with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This miracle is done in order to affirm and to validate the message preached as being an authentic message from God. This is the purpose of this miracle. And we have today the full canon of scripture, the completed word of God. And it is our test for what is preached, for what we hear. The word of God is our test. Next, let's keep in mind the wow factor. The wow factor in this text These people all knew this crippled man. They knew his hopeless plight. And then let us read again from verse 9. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. Paul looked at him intently and saw that he had faith to be made well. And he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. Brothers and sisters, I fear we read this like it's a fairy tale. We read fairy tales and we read amazing things in fairy tales and, and we can have no reaction. The man rubbed the lamp and the genie came out and granted him three wishes. And we can read that with no emotion, with no excitement, with no wow factor because we know that's not real. But when we come to scripture and reread something like this, we dare not read it like it's a fairy tale. This happened. So so let's not come to this text and read the text without stopping for a moment and appreciating the wonder and the awe of the works of the hand of God. He healed a man crippled from birth. The crowd that was there that day clearly understood the wow factor. They clearly understood that this was to be seen with awe and wonder. Verse 11 says When the crowd saw it, what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, they raised their voices and said in the Lyconian language, there's two reasons for this. It's hot in here. There's two. Re- That's not one of the reasons. Uh, there's two reasons that they spoke in the Lyconian language. The first reason was that this was a shocking thing. This man who does not walk is walking and leaping. It's such an unexpected and amazing thing that, that they fell back to their native tongue. The, the Greek speaking went out the window. They, they are so taken aback by this that, that they go back to basics <laughs> and they fell back to their native tongue. So they're speaking in this Lyconian language. But secondly, this event took them back to their roots, back to a place, back to something that they believed in mythology, Greek mythology, Roman mythology. We must remember these are Gentiles. These people did not know about the God of the Jews. They did not know the name Jehovah. They did not have the scriptures. So they immediately when they see something like this. They immediately fall back to what they've always believed. And they fell back to their mythological and polytheistic roots. Now they wouldn't have said mythological. But poly mythological these things aren't real polytheism meaning more than one God they immediately fell back to this they believed in more than one God from Greek or Roman paganism and the Greeks and the Romans had the same gods but those gods would go by different names uh, so the same gods would go by different names they fell back to their belief in gods like Poseidon, who was the god of the sea or the god of water in general. Uh, he was also the god of horses. I love the Greek gods who have like this is my main thing, but I also really like horses. <laughs> this is this is what they believe. This is what they fell back to. They fell back to their belief in Mercury. Uh, Now, if you're reading from the King James Bible, you'll see the God called Mercury here uh, in the New American Standard, the English Standard. We have this God called Hermes. Hermes or Mercury was a God of wealth, commercial business, uh, good luck. Uh, He was particularly partial to the corn agricultural business. They fell back to their belief in Zeus, The God of the sky. And we are accustomed to seeing depictions of Zeus holding a lightning bolt in his hand. These people believed in God's plural. But notice that these people believed in all these gods that reigned in all these realms. But not any God that they believed in was over all. Now, any God of their pagan of their paganism was over all things. Every one of their so-called gods was limited in power, was limited in scope. When these people are faced with this healing, which can be nothing less than a supernatural act of deity, They fall back to this paganism and they say in verse 11, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And for us to understand this properly, we have we need to know something else about this mythology. Uh, There was an author of this day named Ovid who had written a story about Greek and Roman gods and dealing with people in this very area. And this information that Ovid wrote is referenced by almost every biblical scholar who deals with this text in Acts 14. What Ovid wrote, and this is a a simple, simple man's summary. What Ovid wrote was a story about the time that the gods Zeus and Hermes came down to earth and walked among men. They disguised themselves as paupers. And they went around asking for a place to stay, begging for help. And the story made much of the evil people who turned away these gods disguised as men and would not help them. But one very poor couple did help them and gave them, took them in and gave them food to eat. Then the gods supposedly destroyed the town and all those evil people, but the poor couple. They were rewarded. They transfer, transformed their home into a temple and made them keepers of the temple. They were rewarded. Now, this story of Ovid, these gods become men. God's coming down as men was told all over. Everyone knew the story and everyone knew the moral of the story. Everyone knew there could come a time once again when the gods come down as men and we must be ready for the test. We must be ready to pass the test. So now we have that background. These people are gathered here. They observe this crippled man that they've known for years miraculously healed before their very eyes and they collectively say, this is it. The gods have become men. This is what we've heard about from Ovid and this is what we've been raised. This is our test. And we're going to be ready So verse 13, that they brought oxen and garland. The the priest of Zeus was there ready. They wanted to offer sacrifice. This is their test. And they will pass this test in this way. They are thinking. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. We read the end of this. But how would this end if this took place in America in 2021? 2021? The Lystrian people would be coming out ready to offer sacrifice and we would want to leave them undisturbed so that they could complete their worship ritual. We would not want to disrespect or dishonor their culture in any way. Perhaps Paul and Barnabas would accept the worship that was offered to them so that they would not offend the worshipers. We live in a day, friends, that offending someone is the unpardonable sin. Especially offending a culture. Perhaps if this happens today, next week. Paul and Barnabas would would hold a joint worship service with the priest of Zeus and it would show how these men were just involved with one another and they were open to new and different things. It would really bring, bring the community together. Those are the things that we hear, but that is not what happened here. Paul had not taken a class in political correctness. Praise God. This What we have here in Acts 14 is another example of something that might be considered by our modern sensitivities as impolite, as not nice. Christians, we need to learn that sometimes it's not just okay to not be nice. Sometimes it's necessary to not be nice. We need to learn to be less about nice and more about truth, especially when nice is a blasphemy against God. And that's what it was here in Acts 14. And if you think the nice, nice of our culture is never a blasphemy against God, you're not paying attention. Verse 14 says, Paul and Barnabas heard about it. I I find that interesting that it doesn't say they saw it, but it says they heard of it. This either means that they were somewhere else or the crowd was obstructing their view, but they heard about it. And when they heard about it, they tore their clothes. Now, uh, my friend David Dykstra said, this was a Jewish practice that kept many wives busy and many tailors in business. (laughs) Tearing their clothes. (laughs) just imagine this is this is an act to show extreme displeasure, no uncertain disapproval. nobody guessed what Paul and Barnabas were feeling about this thing. They tore their clothes and they rushed into the crowd crying out. And Paul and Barnabas. Corrected them. Paul and Barnabas. Corrected them. They actually said. What you're doing is wrong. There is more concern. With these Christian men. To correct this blasphemous mistake than there is to avoid hurting feelings more concerned to be faithful to the God who is than there is to avoid offense I want to pause right here I've said this this is a repetition we don't need to seek to bring offense the gospel of Christ is an offense. And we don't need to seek to bring more offense, but Christians, we don't need to seek to cover up and polish and, and gloss over the offense of the gospel. Earlier we mentioned that these were Gentiles, pagans who had not had the scriptures to teach them about Jehovah. The God who is, unlike their false gods, over all things. So we don't hear in this text Paul and Barnabas quoting scripture and say, you have heard it said or it is written. They don't refer to the Jewish scripture. They don't say, remember what Hosea said about forgetting God's word? They don't, they don't do that. They don't make reference to King David or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. What they do instead is very important for us to see and to learn from. And I want to hurry, but this is where this is where it gets good. This is where it gets exciting. Let us read again verse 14. To refresh our memories. Verse 14 and 15. But when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas Barnabas and Paul heard about it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowds, crying out, verse 15, and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, preaching the gospel to you to turn from these useless things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them. First of all, they pointed out. Well, first of all, they said, stop this. Stop. Why are you doing this? I I hear somebody say, have you lost your mind? That's the sense of what we get here. Stop. Why are you doing these things? So first they say, stop this. Second, they point out we are men just like you. They say of the same nature, meaning we are the human race just like you are. And then third, we are preaching the gospel to you. Hear the good news. And they give them uh, what's explained further here. They give them the invitation of the gospel. There is an appeal to repent. We are preaching the gospel to you that you would turn. That's repentance. And that you would turn to God. That's faith. So they're preaching to them repentance and faith. Turn from, by the way they say, turn from these useless things. There's no attempt here still to to validate their pagan gods or to validate their belief. Your gods are useless things. Our God is living. Turn to a living God. Now here we have to have a little excursus on the fourth commandment. Just for a moment. Think of it as a brief intermission that you want to pay attention. You may think this is an odd place to just bring in to start talking about the Ten Commandments and especially the Fourth Commandment. But we're going to see why this is so important. Why this is so vital to this text. The Fourth Commandment. The Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Fourth Commandment. Is the commandment that is most hated. Now I didn't see that in a study. That's my words. This is the commandment that's most hated. And I say that because the fourth commandment is the first one that people want to eliminate. The first commandment that people want to take out is the fourth commandment. And and many people, when they say we should take out the fourth commandment, this is the reason that they cite. The fourth commandment is not repeated or referenced in the New Testament. So we should just take it out. It's Old Testament stuff. I don't want to go into this a lot, but I do believe that there's good reason to believe that God really meant Ten commandments. He really meant all ten of them. And when he wrote the commandments with his own finger on tablets of stone, he really meant it. Even the fourth one. And when the tablets were broken by Moses and God, for the second time, wrote the commandments with his own finger on tablets of stone, he still wrote the fourth commandment and he still really meant it. We must hold to the fourth commandment because it is eternal. It is the moral law of God. It's not just an old covenant positive law from some bygone error. It's for us. And we must hold to it because it was never abrogated. And Hebrews clearly teaches that there is still a Sabbath. Amen. God's people, by the way, Seek to obey God's commands. And we must love. We must not only obey. We must love the fourth commandment. But how does the fourth commandment. Fit into the text today. What does this commandment. Have to do with Barnabas. And Paul at Lystra. Dealing with these pagan people. In order for us to see it. I want to read the entirety. Of the fourth commandment. From Exodus 20. This is Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your men slaves or your female slaves or your cattle or the resident who is living with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And he rested on the seventh. For that reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now look back at verse 15 of our text. Paul and Barnabas cry out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, preaching the gospel to you, to turn from these useless things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Do you see that? Paul here appeals on the basis of the Ten Commandments The eternal moral law of God. And he doesn't use the first commandment. That would have been a wonderful one to use. That would have been great. He doesn't use the second commandment. That's not the one that the Holy Spirit brings to Paul's mind and to his lips. He uses the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. For God created all things in the space of six days. And on the seventh day he rests. And this is what he uses. And by the way, this is an affront. This is not sensitive to their culture. This is an affront to their culture. God, the living God, Jehovah, made the heavens. Oh, you thought Zeus was the God of the heavens? No. God is the God of the heavens. God is. Jehovah made the earth. You thought Hermes had power on earth? No. Jehovah God is the God of the earth.
1: Poseidon,
0: the God of the sea, are you kidding me? Jehovah God made the sea. Not only did he make heaven and earth and sea, he made all the things in them. This is an affront to their culture. Because sometimes we have to say that is wrong. Paul and Barnabas referring to the fourth commandment here in Acts 14. Points these pagan sinners to the true and living God. This Jesus that you hear us preaching about. He is not like the Greek or Roman mythological gods that you know he is God come down to earth I love that they have a story of gods coming down to earth and the gospel is a story of God Taking on flesh, taking to himself, our catechism says, and we said it together earlier, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her. But without sin, our gospel is a story of God coming down and becoming a man, the God man. Our gospel is a story of the God man being rejected by poor sinners on earth but the God who is Jehovah God does not seek vengeance through because of the death of Jesus Christ. Jehovah God through the life and death and resurrection. Of Jesus reconciles sinners to God through Jesus' blood. But by pointing them to the fourth commandment, they're saying, do away, again, do away with these useless false gods. Turn to the truth and living God. Now we gotta hurry. In verse 16, in past generations, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. What we're seeing here is the Gentiles didn't have the scriptures. The the scriptures were given to the Jews only, but God did give them a testimony. He did not leave them with nothing. Verse 17, yet he did not leave you without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The good things of God are a testimony to who he is, and God had given them this testimony. Every good thing that they had ever ascribed to Zeus or Hermes or Poseidon, all those good things came from God. He has been giving you these common graces. Common graces are the things, not salvation, but everything that is not salvation, that is a good gift from God, a good thing that we enjoy as humans is a common grace from God. And they had enjoyed these and and given praise to these false gods for them. They came from God. And now he is offering salvation by special grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. Now we note in verse 18. The stubbornness. The, the, the stubborn rebellion. Of sinful men. They worshipped Paul and Barnabas. As gods. Paul and Barnabas rebuked them. And say we are not gods. And we read. Even by saying these things. Only with difficulty. Did they restrain the crowd. From offering sacrifice to them, the the stubborn rebellion of sinful men. Now this is the end of our text, but but let us think how this applies to us today. Probably I, I feel pretty certain that no one listening here today is a worshiper of Zeus or Hermes. But some of you are living your life enjoying the common graces, the good things that have come to you, the good things that have come to you from the hand of God, and you have ascribed those things to some other than God. Maybe not Zeus or Hermes, but it was just good luck. We just, we just had good luck. We had such good fortune. Or our own efforts. Boy, I worked really hard and I made that happen. I I planted that garden. I watered it. I picked the produce. I did that. You could go on and on with the good things that come to us that some of you ascribe to some other than God. What God gives you, what we take from God, what we receive from God, should point us to the true and living God. What a good day. What a wonderful wife, family. What a good job. All of these things we take and it just dies within us. May it never be. Let us point, let us have those things point us to good benevolent God don't be stubborn like those in this text they they would sooner worship common men than come to God in repentant faith hear the call hear the cry Paul, as he speaks, I'm preaching the gospel to you that you would turn from these useless things. Think about your life without Christ. What could it be but useless things? I preach the gospel that you turn from these useless things to a living God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply these words of scripture to our heart. God, that you would convict us where we have been just as pagan as these men of listeners. we pray for those who you have saved that you would continue the work. You you have promised that you who began the work would be faithful to complete it. And we pray to that end that you would continue to completion the work of conforming us to the image of Christ. God, we pray for those who are living a life filled with useless things a life that is ultimately empty and will end with eternity in hell. We pray that you would open their eyes to their own sin, that you would allow them to see the grace and beauty of Jesus Christ. Draw them, draw them to Jesus. I pray this in his precious name.